Today's program is entitled The Historical Paul. And um, last Friday, we did The Historical Jesus. Our speaker for today is Rabbi Joshua Garraway, uh, PhD, who serves as Associate Professor of Early Christianity and the Second Commonwealth at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles. Rabbi Garraway says that, I don't know if it's his department or some of his department actually comprise the USC program in Jewish studies. So he is, uh, that's where he, he teaches at um, both SC and um, at um, Hebrew Union College. He earned his doctorate from a small, uh, relatively unknown university in, uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, named Yale University. He was ordained at the Cincinnati campus of HUC. His first book, Paul's Gentile Jews, Neither Jew nor Gentile, but both, explores the ways in which Paul's epistle to the Romans constructs Jewish identity and the role played by this construction in, ensuing, in the ensuing emergence of Christianity. Let's learn about Paul, and uh, thank you all for coming out on this rainy day. EU is the Greek word for good. It's where we get words like eulogy that mean a good word about someone when they die. And angelion is a word we should know well because we live right near Los Angeles. So angelos is the word for angel or messenger. So euangelion, which is the thing that I'm suggesting Paul created, is the good message. Now that goes into German and becomes good, which is gut, and message is spiel. So gut spiel becomes gospel. That's how it all works. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes in, in, in lectures, I, I end up getting sidetracked for about a half an hour. Like the character from my big fat Greek wedding. Um, yeah, although his, his etymologies are actually all wrong, but you don't have to worry about that. Okay, so um, before I get started, let me say thank you again to Ari and to everyone here uh, for coming out, to everybody involved in making the, uh, the Community Scholars Program work. I can tell you, whipping down the five, not in my minivan, not with kids in the car, and not to go to Disneyland was really an exciting experience the last two uh, weeks. Normally, that's why I'm uh, leaving Los Angeles County and coming south. Okay, so what I want to do today is really quite simple. Yes, I think it was generically titled The Historical Paul. You'll see when I hand this out, I've titled it Paul, Apostate or Loyal Jew. Because one of the things I want to do today is to help some of you, perhaps, appreciate Paul the ex to the extent that I do. Now, Paul is often maligned in the Jewish community. Even in communities where Jesus is now sort of accepted and celebrated as a good Jew, a good liberal Jew, or a fine teacher, or whatever it is, Paul invariably is castigated as the horrible PR guy for Jesus who destroyed Judaism and took Jesus's message away from what it originally was, and so on and so forth. I happen to find Paul to be an inspiring figure, um, I devoted my scholarly life to the study of his literature. I have many action figures on my desk and a whole variety of other things. I'm not suggesting any of you will go that far, but one of my goals for today um, is somewhat controversially, I think, at the end, to suggest to you that Paul might be a Jewish figure that a lot of us can identify with. 
We'll get to that at the very end. But before, we have to go back to the beginning, start with who Paul was, and then importantly, what Paul said and did. And that will get us to where I'd like to go. So in order to do that, we need to go back to last Friday's discussion, where we were talking about the historical Jesus, not the Jesus described in the Gospels, which I suggested to you is not a historical reportage of who Jesus was and what Jesus did, but the historical picture of Jesus that we arrive at when we apply criteria of historicity to the Gospels. And I suggested that I think the best historical picture of Jesus is one of an apocalyptic Jewish prophet of the first century, a person who believed that God was about to enter the world again, radically change the way the world looked, redeem the Jewish people, and a whole variety of other things that many other Jewish apocalypticists were expecting. Now, whatever Jesus was historically, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because Jesus, I would suggest to you, like every other person who has ever existed, died. Now, the story could have ended there. There were lots of apocalyptic prophets and preachers in the first century who died. I could give you a rogues gallery of 10 of them like I do to my students. What makes Jesus of Nazareth so interesting is that shortly after he died, his inner circle of disciples believed that in fact he had not died. They became convinced that he had been resurrected from the dead. Now, why is that? I don't know. Did they think they saw Jesus like you're seeing me here right now? Maybe. Did they see Jesus in heaven? I don't know. Did they hear Jesus speaking through some person and thought he had been resurrected from the dead? No one really knows. And it doesn't really matter. For a historian, what's most important for a historian is the undeniable fact that his inner circle of Jews believed that even though he had been crucified, he was not dead any longer. And even more importantly, he was coming back imminently. Now, once these first disciples came to that view, and by the way, it's not unprecedented, or at least looking backwards, in Jewish history. For those of you that are familiar with Chabad, you know that when the Lubavitcher Rebbe died, a number of them believe he's still alive and he's coming back imminently. And I could give you a rogues gallery of Jewish messianic figures who have died, and nevertheless, their followers have not accepted that. In any case, when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth, his inner disciples believed that he was resurrected from the dead. And that required them to do two things. One, they had to figure out why had this guy who said that the end of the world was about to happen and that he was either going to inaugurate it or he was announcing it, why had he died? But more importantly, why had he come back from the dead? That's not something that happens on a routine basis. So they had to look into their ideas about Judaism, about redemption, about Messiah, and try to figure out why had this guy risen from the dead? So where do Jews go when they want to understand why something has happened from a theological perspective? They go to the Hebrew Bible. And so they combed the Hebrew Bible. And what they decided was that in fact, all along, the Hebrew Bible had told us Jews 
that the Messiah, a son of God, was going to come and he was going to be persecuted and suffer and die and be resurrected. Now, Jews hadn't seen that because it's not always straightforward on the surface. You have to know how to read behind the lines of Isaiah or the Psalms. But once you do that, you will see that, in fact, Jesus, who in the eyes of most of his followers was probably a great disappointment in having died on a cross, had in fact fulfilled what he was always supposed to fulfill, and Jews just didn't know it. So that was the first thing they had to do, was figure out why had he died and been resurrected. And their answer was, because all along Jews had misunderstood what their redemption was going to be. All along, God was going to send a Messiah who was going to die and be resurrected in order that Jews could be baptized into that experience of death and resurrection renewal so that when the Redeemer came back, he would be able to judge us all kindly. The idea being that if Jesus had judged the world when he was here, all 80 of us would have failed miserably. But by dying and being resurrected and giving us as Jews the opportunity to be baptized and experience death and renewal, we are then in a place of perfection or cleanliness that when Jesus comes back and evaluates our fitness for olam haba, the world to come, we'll pass muster. That's what they decided. The second thing they decided, based on the first, is that that's a really important message. There's 12 of us here, maybe some other friends. We know that God just sent his redeemer who died and was resurrected and is coming back post-haste. So what do we need to do? We need to go around and preach that to every Jew we can find. And so in the weeks and months after the death of Jesus, that inner circle, Peter, John, mysteriously Jesus' brother James, who appears to have just emerged, right? they began going around Jerusalem and Judea and in the Galilee, preaching, hey, Jews, do you know what? I'm coming in the synagogue to tell you something remarkable. This guy, Jesus, from Nazareth, he died and was resurrected. Do you know why? Because he's about to come back. And the only way you're going to pass muster when he judges the world on God's behalf is if you've been baptized into the experience of his death and resurrection. And for a year, two years, three years, they went around preaching this message to other Jews. And I would suggest to you that it largely fell on deaf ears. Why? Because Jews said, no, 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 no. That's not how God redeems us. When God redeems us, God sends a redeemer who's going to get a really big army and kick the bejesus, no pun intended, out of the Romans and establish Jewish law and rebuild a pristine temple and this and that. They don't die and get resurrected no matter what you tell me Isaiah or the Psalms was really saying. So most Jews did not accept it, but some did. What happened next was incredibly important. These Jews decided, you know what? If this is really the end, it's not only important for Jews. Why? Because if you're familiar with the prophets, you know that when the prophets envision the end, they don't only envision an end for Jews. They envision an end for everybody. So you may know the most famous passage from Isaiah chapter 40, that Jew and Gentile 
will hold hands and walk up to the mountain of the Lord together, right? Or you know if you sing the Alenu at the end of a prayer service, right? On that day, the Lord's name will be one. Um, he will be one. God will be one. His name will be one. And all idolatry will be, you know, destroyed from the earth. And everybody will confess God as their God and, 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 and whatnot. That's a standard, even today, that's a standard Jewish eschatological scenario that in the end, yeah, we Jews are going to be redeemed, but you know what? Good Gentiles are coming with us. So these followers of Jesus said the message about Jesus' death and resurrection and his imminent return, it ain't just for us. It's for Gentiles too. And Gentiles weren't that hard to find in a Jewish milieu. Why? Because if you go to, I'm guessing, five or six synagogues in Orange County, you're going to find a lot of Jews. You know who else you're going to find there? A lot of Gentiles. Gentiles who are interested in Judaism or have Jewish husbands or Jewish wives or Jewish family members or people who have Jewish friends or Jewish business associates. I'm guessing if we just walk around the halls of this JCC, there's a lot of non-Jews hanging out for all kinds of different reasons. Well, in antiquity, especially in the Greco-Roman period, that was common in synagogues. They may even have had a name in synagogues called God-fearers, which you're not a Jew, you're not a proselyte to Judaism, you're this other category of Gentiles who really like being Jewish but aren't Jewish, and that's called God-fearers. And it's likely that the earliest Gentile contacts for these people were uh, uh, these God-fearers. And what was the message? If there was ever a time to become Jewish, now's the time. Because guess what? Jesus of Nazareth came. He died. He was resurrected. He's coming back imminently. Now, hey, if you're a man, it's time to get circumcised. If you're not a man, it's time to start, if you are a man or if you're not a man, it's time to start observing the Shabbat. It's time to start eating kosher food. It's time for you now to accept that you ought to become a Jew. Because when God comes back, or when Jesus comes back, sent by God, right, he is going to judge and now is the chance, if you want to be baptized and accept Jewish identity, go for it. It's hard to say what kind of a success that ministry had. But only a year or two after the beginning of that Gentile ministry, which followed the Jewish ministry, there emerged a man who would change this ministry forever. And his name was Paul. Now, some believe that his name was originally Saul, that he was, like many modern people, a Jew who had a state name, Paul, and a Jewish name, Saul, in the same way that I guess I am Joshua in America and Yehoshua in Israel. Um, that's a bad example because my English name is my Hebrew name, but there are plenty of people who are named Eric and their Hebrew name is Melech. Okay, that might have been what Paul was like. In any case... Paul, during the years of the initial Jewish ministry and the early Gentile ministry, as far as we know, was a persecutor of these Christians. They went around saying, Jesus died, he's resurrected, he's coming back, Jews get on board. And Paul was there saying, hell no, you can't preach that. That's sacrilege, that's terrible, that's not what a Jewish redeemer does. And apparently was hauling some of these early Christians into trials and courts and persecuting them and so on and so forth. Until at some point in time, Paul had an experience. He literally had a come to Jesus moment. And he came to believe, oh my God, these people are right. 
Jesus did die, he was resurrected, and he is coming back. Again, I don't know the nature of that experience. There's a famous, I think it's Caravaggio painting, you know, where he, the light blinds him, he's on a horse, that comes from the book of Acts. To me, that's a dramatic representation of something that the author of Acts knew nothing about. Paul had some kind of revelatory experience that made him believe Jesus was for real. Now, that's only part of the story, because if that were all that happened, he would have joined the ministry, gone to Jews, gone to Gentiles, and told them it's time now to become Jewish, it's time now to get ready because Jesus is coming back. But Paul had an additional idea. He said, hmm, the reason why Jesus died and was resurrected was not so that Jews would have an opportunity to be fixed in advance of the end time. The reason Jesus died and was resurrected was so that Gentiles would have a chance to get fixed at the end. Now, I don't know about you. My grandparents were what I call Jewish racists. They thought that Gentiles were less than Jews. In antiquity, that was the standard point of view. Jews understood Gentiles as inveterate singer, sinners. Gentiles walk around, they can't help but just finding an idol and worshiping it and having some illicit homosexual relationship and, and, and drinking until they're, they're sick. That Goyim, as my grandparents would have said, that Gentiles were just a rotten lot. And I think Paul believed that too. And his idea was, hmm, if the end is coming, how are Gentiles going to join Jews at the end if Gentiles are fundamentally broken? Well, something had to happen so that they could be fixed and participate. What happened? Jesus died, was resurrected. Gentiles can be baptized, experience that death and resurrection, and then when Jesus comes back, those Gentiles, who otherwise could never be fixed, could be fixed. Now, if you had asked another Jew, how does a Gentile get fixed? Become a Jew. Take on the Torah. Start eating kosher foods. Start observing the Sabbath. Start living a Jewish life. And you'll turn from a rotten Gentile into a worthwhile Jew. But Paul's premise was that Gentiles are so bad, they can't do that. They can try to become Jewish. They can try to live a moral Jewish life. They're broken. They can't. Something cosmic had to happen in order to fix Gentiles for Jesus' return. What did Paul do? He said, well, I got all these other people in Judea, in the Galilee, in Asia Minor, and they're running around telling Jews Jesus is coming back. And they're telling Gentiles, Jesus is coming back, you need to become a Jew. But I need to go tell Gentiles, Jesus is coming back. And you shouldn't become a Jew, because if you try to become a Jew to become righteous, you're going to fail. The only thing you can do is get baptized and not become a Jew. Do not get circumcised. Do not eat kosher food. Do not observe the Sabbath, because if you do, you will be suggesting that Jesus died in vain. The very reason Jesus died was so that you as a Gentile could be fixed but he needed a new place to preach that message. 
So he pushed on further west. He went to many of the cities of the Aegean that you might visit on an Aegean cruise, like Ephesus and Colossae and Troy. And eventually he made his way into what is today Greece and Thessaloniki, Salonika, and Athens. And eventually he planned to work his way all the way to Rome and then all the way to Spain on his belief that once he had made it to Spain, and all of the Gentiles of the world, no offense China, no offense New World, all of the Gentiles of the world would have heard the message that Jesus died and was resurrected so that they could be fixed. Then Jesus would come back and consummate the world. Now, the problem was that many of the other peers in the Christian world thought that Paul was out to lunch, that Paul was nuts. A, that Paul had never known Jesus, that Paul didn't really see Jesus resurrected from the dead, that Paul had never gotten a revelation from Jesus, and that Paul's notion that somehow if you're baptized, that doesn't mean you should take on Jewish law was just downright ridiculous. Now, according to Paul, he went around and preached his message for years, and then eventually he realized if he didn't go back to Jerusalem and talk through things with Peter and James and John and the original disciples, right, he was going to get nowhere. And he says he went back, and he says they made an agreement. Now, he also tells us that shortly after the agreement, Peter and John and James and so on reneged on the agreement. How did they renege? They said, ah, we're not going to accept that in Gentile territories, Gentiles don't have to embrace the law. And indeed, what we're going to do is we're going to send out emissaries to all the places that you've gone, baptizing Gentiles and telling them not to observe Jewish law, and we're going to tell them the opposite. We're going to prove to them that, yes, they need to be baptized. Yes, Jesus is coming back, but they also need to become Jews. And what transpired over the next 10 years, I would suggest, was an out-and-out -out war over Gentile souls where you had Jerusalem community and their emissaries going into places saying, you must start living the life of a Jew. And you had Paul's emissaries and Paul writing letters to them saying, no, the absolute worst thing you can do is start living life as a Jew. Because if you do, you will be saying that Jesus of Nazareth had died in vain. Is all of that clear? Let me take a couple of questions just to make sure that's clear, because then we're going to get into the fun stuff. We're going to read Paul, and I'm going to try to prove to you that Paul is like a lot of us. Yeah? So how do you reconcile then the fact that Paul was Jewish and his views of Judaism with this, these acts of saying, I'm going to help the Gentiles, but I didn't want to... We'll get to that at the end, because Paul was asking himself the same question Everyone else was. This guy died and was resurrected from the dead. Why? Why didn't he just judge the world when he was here? He must have died and been resurrected for, the reason, for a reason. And for Paul, that reason was because Gentiles were incorrigibly broken. And if they were going to participate in the redeemed world, they'd have to be fixed. And Jesus dying and being resurrected allowed Gentiles to be fixed. Let's just take a couple more questions. I just, I just want to make sure all of, let me, let me, let's put hands down for a second. I just want to make sure that's clear, what I'm saying. If there's any confusion about what I'm saying, ask a question. If you have a comment about what the implications of it, let's hold that for later. That's okay. So was, from your perspective, Paul then was still a practicing Jew, following I, the commandments? I have no idea 
what Paul was doing in his private time. I think Paul would have said that in the wake of Jesus, Jewish life for Jews is what he would call adiaphora, which comes, diaphora is where we get the word difference. So adiaphora is, it don't make a difference. If you're a Jew, get yourself baptized and you're ready for the return. If you're used to eating kosher, if you're used to observing Shabbat, if you're used to singing micha mocha, keep going. It doesn't matter. But for a Gentile to take on the Torah as if somehow that is going to make him righteous in the end of times, well, that's a cry in shame. Because that's saying Jesus didn't have to die and be resurrected to fix me. So I don't think Paul cared very much about what Jews were doing. His obsession was what Gentiles were doing. Yeah, two more questions that are clearing up confusion, and then we're going to move on. So supposedly, did Paul tell the Gentiles that if they, besides baptism, if they believed in Jesus, they would have life everlasting or be redeemed? Is that if attributed Paul, to Paul? Paul told Gentiles that if they are baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. They had to believe in Christ. Yeah, well, the baptism is presumably part of accepting that Jesus died and was resurrected. But, yeah. And was telling them they would have a trouble? Because that's what they say today. Let's not worry about what they say today. Let's just worry about what Paul was saying. Last question, then we're going to, to clear up confusion. Do you believe... And let's move this around while we're... Do you believe that when Paul claimed to be a knowledgeable Pharisee of Pharisees, a student of the law and the Torah, that he was, in fact, a Pharisee of Pharisees, fully knowledgeable about all of the Old Testament? No. Was Jesus a Pharisee? Possibly. No, no, I said was Paul. Paul. Excuse me, was Paul a Pharisee? Possibly. Was Paul a student of Gamaliel in Jerusalem? Possibly. Did Paul know all of the Torah? No, because no one really does. But now I'll grant you, was Paul a very knowledgeable Jew with very deft exegetical skills resembling what we now call the rabbis or sages? Yeah, and I'm about to show you that. And you're going to get upset, and you're going to say, this is not fair. This isn't a legitimate interpretation. And I'll tell you, compared to what the rabbis do in Midrash, this is benign. But when rabbis do it, oh, they're so clever and wonderful. When Paul does it, he's a liar. This is scam. This is PR. I'm going to try to get you to appreciate Paul and his rabbinic skills and Paul and his ontological challenge, which I'll talk about at the very end. Uh, only one more, two quick questions because I want to make sure the paper gets around. Just the definition of Gentile. Is Gentile equal non-Jew? What, what, what is meant by Gentile? Okay, this is fun. So... For the ancient Greeks and for the ancient Jews living and speaking in Greek, which all Jews at this time basically were, except maybe in the East where they were speaking Aramaic, Jews were Eudaioi, and they were an ethnos, a nation. All of the other nations or people, this is where we get the word ethnic, all the other people were the ethnoi. We're the ethnos, they are the ethnoi. When that goes into Latin, we are. In Spanish, you know, right? We are la gente, the people, and all the rest of the world are Gentiles. So Gentile is just a word that means not Jew. It doesn't necessarily mean pagan, which refers to religious practices. Yeah, you keep using 
the word baptism or being baptized into the religion and then you're using it in the religion of, of, of the first wave of being baptized into Judaism and then... I'm not talking about baptism into Judaism at all. Well, that's, that's why I'm a little confused because you, in the first, the first set of disciples are going out saying, you need to become good Jews. Yes, but for these people, baptism into Christ was necessary for salvation, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. So when these disciples went to other Jews, they said, yes, you're a Jew. Get ready for Jesus coming back. And the way you get ready is by being baptized. Because then you experience death and resurrection, and you will be a changed person. Well, not anymore. But they did. Well, I know a lot of Jews who get baptized. If you convert, you get baptized. If baptized just means dunking in water. Yeah, we call it mikvah, but in Greek, that's baptizo. I'm not Jewish, so I didn't know that. I never knew that. Yeah. Only for the converts? No. Some people do it as part of... Uh, as part of a ritual purity for certain women, or other people do it before important events in their lives, like getting married or whatnot. But it is true that no Jew who is born as a Jew needs to be immersed in a mikvah in order to confirm their being Jewish. Um, but for this movement, these Christians, by the way, I, I wrote, just wrote a paper that's going to be published soon where I argued that the notion of women converting, the notion of mikvah, baptism, in order to become Jewish, was stolen from Paul. That there, before Paul, there's actually no evidence for Jewish conversion of women. I argue that there was no such thing as Jewish conversion of women. Because if you don't have a penis, you can't join the covenant of Abraham. Uh, sorry. But, but the rabbis came up with this plan that said, well, you can always dunk him in water. Right? And I, I argue that they got that from Paul because there's no text before Paul in any Jewish community that suggests that a woman can join the covenant of Abraham for very obvious reasons. Um, you can have me back on another day to talk about the history of Jewish conversion. I'd be happy to. But right now we're talking about Paul. And I suggested that Paul had gone to all of these places and had told these Gentiles, get ready. The God of the Jews sent his son. He died, he was resurrected, and he's coming back. And when he comes back, Gentiles are going to be redeemed along with those Jews. But the only way that'll happen is if you're baptized. And then I'm guessing they said to him, oh, the God of the Jews, great. Where's that Torah? I need to start acting like a Jew. And Paul said, no. The reason he died and was resurrected was precisely to fix you in a way that the Torah could never fix you. So do not take up a Jewish life as described in the Torah. And then he left. And then some of Peter's and John's and James's Jerusalem folk came into Galatia and they said, Paul told you what? That guy's nothing. He wasn't one of the original 12. He's never really seen or heard from Jesus. He's just making this up. You really want to be saved? It's great you were baptized. Start observing the law. Shabbat, Kashrut, Hanukkah. Wasn't really that much of a thing then, but it's seasonal. And so Paul got wind of this. And he wrote back a nasty letter to the Galatians. Because, oh, so Galatia was one of those places. Did I mention that yet? Galatia is a place in Asia Minor. This happened over and over again. But one of the places where Paul went and said this was Galatia, the center of what is now Turkey. 
And then afterwards, the rival teachers came in. And then Paul got wind of it and wrote back a nasty letter. He said, oh, you stupid Galatians. Why are you listening to these people? And what we are going to read from now is the third chapter from Galatians, where Paul tries to explain to this Gentile audience why it would be crazy for them to take on a Jewish life, that baptism into Christ's death and resurrection alone suffices to fix them. Got it? Let's look at the argument. It's very clever. But it starts off just by being angry. Paul was angry a lot. It's one of the reasons I like him. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, what that means is not that he had a video where he showed them Jesus being crucified. What it means in ancient rhetoric is that he described the significance of the death and resurrection of Christ so compellingly with words, it's as if they had an image of it in their minds. That's what he's saying. But let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit, presumably through baptism, by works of the law, the Torah, or by hearing with faith? In other words, what fixed you when I came? Wasn't it hearing what I said and having faith in the death and resurrection of Christ? It had nothing to do with the Torah. So are you so foolish that having begun with the spirit that I gave you, you're now going to end up doing things of the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, naturally, his argument is here, here is, Galatians, you got fixed through your faith and your baptism, not through the Torah. So why are you now listening to these people who are telling you to live the life of the Torah? And now he's going to go into his proof based on Jewish texts of why he knows that's the case, because he's a sharp Jewish scholar. He says, look, Abraham, what do we read about Abraham? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, where's that from? It's from Genesis chapter 15. Lech Lecha. Most of us start with Lech Lecha and we tell the story, oh, Abraham decided with his family to leave Babylonia and they came to the land of Israel. And then we sing a Debbie Friedman song and we all go home. Well, there's actually six more chapters in Lech Lecha and chapter 15 is one of the fascinating ones because in chapter 15, God comes down to Abraham and says, yeah, remember I told you you're going to have a kid. And Abraham says, yeah, I don't have a kid. This is a bunch of baloney. The only kid I got is my slave, Eliezer. So where's this kid? And what does God do? He takes him outside. He says, see those stars? Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And instead of saying, baloney, Abraham said, presumably, I believe you. And he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So you see that it is men of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, what is it that made Abraham righteous? Eating a kosher brisket, observing the Sabbath, performing a sacrifice? Belief. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Right? In Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of Lech Lecha, part of the blessing is, you will be blessed, 
and the nations will be blessed through you. So if Abraham is the figure through whom the Gentiles are blessed, and Abraham showed us that one is deemed righteous because of what they think and believe, not because of what they do, isn't that proof enough? So then those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. Yeah, quick question. So justif- this is, justify and righteous are two totally different words in English, but in Greek they're the same. So justify means he is going to have a case, a court case, and you are going to be deemed righteous. So if you're justified, that means you are now in a position where you will be judged righteous. And that's a good thing. Because if you're not judged righteous, you go on the other side of the line. It's not good. Okay. Now he's going to go on. So he says, look, I've showed you from Lech Lecha that what being righteous is about is the right frame of mind, the right belief in God's power. It has nothing to do with the Torah. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You try to live the life of a Torah, you're under a curse. Now you're thinking, why the hell am I under a curse if I try to live the life of the Torah? The Torah tells you that. For it is written in Deuteronomy... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law, for he, through, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And that's a quotation from Habakkuk. Presumably what he's saying here is, the law says, the Torah tells you, if you don't do everything in the Torah, you're under a curse. And the assumption seems to be here that no one does everything. Hell, on Yom Kippur, we all admit, look, we screwed up a few times, at least. I am not so stiff-necked as to say I have not sinned. Verily have I sinned. I don't know what the English is. Okay. So he's saying, the Torah tells you, if you're willing to admit that you don't do the Torah in its entirety perfectly, you're under a curse. Moreover, the way you live righteously is through faith. Not through doing anything. But the law does not rest on faith, for the law tells you, he who does them shall live by them. The Torah is about doing, eating, cooking, sacrificing. And that's not what makes you righteous. Habakkuk tells us what makes you righteous is faith. Now, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. And what is that a reference to? It's a bizarre legal reference. This is a very deft scholar at work. It's from Deuteronomy. You may know that in Deuteronomy, when you execute a person, what do you do afterwards? You hang them up on a tree. Presumably just for a few, you hang them up until the end of the day. Why? Because it scares the Billy Dickens out of people. Right? But the Torah makes clear that at the end of the day, you take them down. If they hang up longer than that, they're cursed. So the argument seems to be here that Jesus, by hanging on a tree, became a curse and therefore took away the curse that all of us were under by trying to live a life according to the law. It's a little convoluted. That in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This isn't his best paragraph. But what he's trying to argue is that the Torah itself tells you what the story of Abraham tells you, which is that faith, not Torah, makes you righteous. 
to give you a better example, and here's where he has a lot of fun. No one annuls even a man's will or adds to it once it has been ratified, right? So if I make a will and my son comes along and says, this will stinks, I'm gonna change it. You can't do that. Now I try to do that on a regular basis. On my wall, we have a ketubah, my wife and I. I'm guessing many of you have it as well. And sometimes I'm not satisfied with the inner workings of our relationship. So I take a post-it note and I wrote, right, you will do laundry, or, or, wife agrees to do laundry more frequently and I put it on the ketubah. Um, it frequently gets taken down and other things are then added. I recommend you try it at home, it's a good system. In any case, you can't do that, right? The ketubah is signed, it's under glass, those are the obligations. So he's saying, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. In other words, the deal was made with Abraham and to his offspring. He says, it does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Why? Well, the Hebrew word there is Abraham and his Zerah. Zerah in Hebrew means seed. It's not Zeraim, which would mean seeds. Likewise, in Greek, the word for seed is probably one you know, sperma. And the plural is spermata, but it says sperma. Now, obviously, in Genesis 15, it is a collective singular. It says zera, and it says sperma, and it means seed, but it means the collective seed. Obviously. But Paul is hardly out of bounds in Jewish interpretation by saying, look, well, maybe we should read the singular as a singular. If he was a rabbi, we'd be saying, oh, how clever. What he's doing is saying it doesn't say that Abraham will have seeds. He'll have a seed. And who's that seed? Christ. So this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In other words, the deal about how to be made righteous was made with Abraham. Faith makes you righteous. 430 years later, Moses took the Israelites. They went to a mountain. There was a thunderstorm. There were laws given. That's all fine and dandy. That does not undo the original covenant, which is faith makes you righteous. Now, I assume the next question you're asking is, well, what the hell was God thinking? Well, why did God even give them a law if, unless he wanted to somehow modify the original covenant? Well, Paul's not stupid. So his next paragraph begins, well, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions till the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, there are many ways of reading this based on what we're going to see in a moment. I think what he's saying here is the original plan was God made a deal with Abraham. There was going to be some history. The world was going to fill up. And then, in the end, Christ would come to consummate the covenant with Abraham. But man, after just a few years of history, everyone was so bad that it wasn't going to happen. So God needed to give the Jewish people, who were the ones that were going to preserve the Abrahamic idea, needed to give them like a muzzle, like a little rule book, so that they could at least say somewhat on the straight and narrow while the rest of the world went to pot. So he gave them the law. Is the law then against the promises of God? In other words, is the law opposed to the original covenant? No, certainly not. For if a law had been given which could make alive, 
then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture consigned all things to sin, that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the law, Moses' law, and Abraham's covenant, they're not against one another. They have totally different purposes. The point of the covenant with Abraham is to reckon people righteous in the end by faith. The purpose of the law is to be a babysitter for the Jewish people. He's going to say that again in this last paragraph. Before faith came, in other words, before Christ came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed. So that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now, the word custodian there in Greek is paidagogos, where we get the word pedagogue. Paidagogos, which literally means leader of children. A paidagogos was the person who, this is kind of fun, in antiquity, not a lot, there was no public education. If you were rich and you were destined to be a significant citizen, you were given public edu you were given education, which meant that around the age of 12 or 13, you went to learn how to give a speech and be a citizen. But in order to train for that, you needed to learn your Homer and you needed to learn your Demosthenes, right? You had to go to your stupid classes and you had to try not to get in trouble. So your father hired for you a custodian whose only job was to keep you out of trouble, to beat you sometimes, to teach you your basic lessons in arithmetic and Plato and whatever, but he was, for all intents and purposes, an exalted babysitter, a paedagogos. He says that's what the law was before Christ. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a custodian. Now that Christ came, we're grown-ups. We get rid of the the paedagogos, we get rid of the custodian. We don't need him anymore. Right? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have literally put on Christ. The word there, put on, means wear. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are absorbed into Christ... If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Because who's the heir of Abraham's promise? Christ. And if you are baptized, you are, for all intents and purposes, Christ. That's a little confusing. So if you flip over the sheet, I've made it easy by drawing a diagram. This is, I think, what Paul is saying about what the Torah is and its significance in Jewish history. So he says, in the beginning, it all started, not in the beginning, 14 chapters after in the beginning, right? In chapter 15, salvation history begins. In other words, the historical process by which God is going to redeem people begins. And it begins by God cutting a deal with Abraham. Abraham, you have faith in me as a God. I deem you righteous. Now, the consummation of that would be the straight line down, which is when Abraham's descendant or heir comes and consummates that promise. The problem is that a short way into that historical process, God realized we needed something to kind of hold everything in abeyance until that consummation comes. So I'm going to give the Jewish people a law at Mount Sinai in order to keep them on the straight and narrow. So that, if you've ever seen Back to the Future, that sort of created an alternate reality. The age of the Torah 
which ends with the death and resurrection of Christ. That brings us back into the original plan for salvation history. And anybody who is absorbed into Jesus by having that baptismal experience becomes a descendant of Abraham. Anybody who thinks that they remain a descendant of Abraham outside of that baptismal experience through the Torah or because they were born a certain way, you're missing the boat. Now, presumably, the opponents in Galatians were telling the Galatians, you want to be a son of Abraham? Get circumcised. Right? That's the mark of the covenant. And what is Paul saying? Ah, circumcision is Genesis chapter 17. Even earlier, it's clear the deal with Abraham ain't circumcision. The deal with Abraham is faith. That's how you become a son of Abraham. Now, before we talk about this and have any other questions, because I think that makes Paul pretty clear, I want to tell you why I find Paul so fascinating and why I think Paul is speaking to an experience of a lot of contemporary Jews. Just hold off for a second. Why is Paul writing the Torah out of Jewish experience? I would suggest to you he's doing it because he is utterly committed to Judaism and Jewish history. And he has no other way to figure out what Judaism means if Jesus died and was resurrected. In other words, he's a standard Jew. And then he has an experience, an experience he can't deny. He can't unknow. He can't say, well, no, I, just, I don't, I don't want to believe that Jesus really died and was resurrected. You can't unknow that kind of experience. That was his new reality. And then he had to ask himself, what in the heck does Judaism mean, given the fact that Jesus of Nazareth died and was resurrected? And his solution was to say, ah, because Jesus died and was resurrected, because that's the way God is going to consummate history. And ah, the point of the Torah was just to get Jews through a period of time until God's Redeemer could come. And once God's Redeemer came, God's Redeemer was able to do something for us that the Torah wasn't able to do. So in reality, what I'm describing by abandoning the Torah is really just in keeping with God's plan for Jewish people and the way the Gentile world is going to be redeemed through the Jewish people. Words, he's not an apostate. He's a Jew trying to figure out what the heck Judaism and Jewish history means in the wake of an undeniably powerful, un, un unknowable experience. I would suggest to you the same exact thing happened to all Jews in the 19th century. We are Jews who are emancipated and enlightened. I'm a citizen of the United States of America. 200 years ago, that was impossible. It, anywhere in the world that a Jew would be a member of society. More importantly than that, I'm an enlightened Jew. I know as a matter of fact Moses did not write the Torah. I know as a matter of fact that many of the things that we think of as Israelite history are not history. They're fifth and fourth century cultural propaganda, royal propaganda. I know all of this. I'm enlightened. I can't unknow that. 
I can't go back into the ghetto. I can't go back into saying, well, my life would just be so much easier if I believed that Moses wrote the Torah and there was an oral law that was transmitted from Sinai all the way down to the rabbis and therefore the halacha is God's desire for my life and therefore I need to live according to the 613 commandments and the halacha. I can't go into the Orthodox community authentically. I'm changed. My goose is cooked. What I'm trying to do now as a liberal Jew is try to figure out, in light of enlightenment and emancipation, what the hell does Judaism mean anymore? What does the Torah mean? What does Jewish community mean? What does Jewish collectivism mean? What's right? What's wrong? How does Judaism change? Should Judaism change? All of these questions are constantly on my mind as a liberal Jew, precisely because I had an explosion. My explosion wasn't having a vision of the resurrected Christ. My explosion was experiencing enlightenment and emancipation. And for me, nothing will ever be the same. And like many of you and many people in the liberal Jewish world, I'm trying to figure that out. I don't think the answer is a Torah-free Judaism moving forward. But moving forward for liberal Jews, what the Torah is going to mean is something a lot different than what it meant until the 18th century. It's not going to mean a halachic, rabbinic Jewish life, except in the Orthodox community. And that is why I look at Paul and say, he's a lot like me. Totally different kind of experience, but an experience that forces him to utterly reimagine what Judaism is and what Jewish history means. And that's why I feel for him, and I like him, and I study him. And I hope that I have made him a little bit more appealing to you and not just an angry, arrogant PR guy that screwed up the message of Jesus. Thank you. Ooh. Will you take questions? And... OK, we have time for a few quick questions. We'll start with Ray over here. Why did Paul need Jesus? He keeps, re keeps referring back to Abraham. What's the necessity of the intermediary? Do you know? Well, there is no intermediary. Jesus is an intermediary. Jesus is, I don't think, for him an intermediary. First of all, he needs Jesus because he had an experience which made him believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. You can't unknow that. You can't just go to sleep at night and think, I'm not going to remember that. I'm not going to think of that. You have to make sense of that. And the way he made sense of it was to say that the promise that was begun with Abraham was consummated in Christ. And God told us in chapter 12 the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham, right? The way you get blessed through Abraham is by being baptized into his single descendant, who is Christ. Now, if you're asking why didn't God just consummate the world at the time of Abraham, I don't know what Paul would say. Um, he might say, well, there weren't enough Gentiles ready yet, or that just wasn't God's plan. Um, that's sort of a question that always comes up in the theological, uh, historical theology. Is you could even ask the question, well, why would God have even created the world in the first place? He just <laughs> instead of creating a world, he just could have created the redeemed world. Why start with a world that needs to be redeemed? That's a good question. Yeah, these are uh, but usually theological historians are dealing, you know, with hindsight and saying, well, this is what the world, this is what happened. How do we make sense of this? Okay. Okay. You, I think, were suggesting that traditional Jewish belief at the time of Jesus was that the way for Gentiles to be redeemed was to convert to Judaism. 
Or my understanding was always that the traditional Jewish belief was that Gentiles did not have to convert to Judaism to be redeemed. All they had to do was to follow the seven Noahite laws. Are you saying that this whole concept of just following the uh, seven Noahite laws to be redeemed for Gentiles came after Jesus in reaction to the whole uh, Paul theory that that uh, that uh, this is how you had to be? Yeah, so I would suggest to you we have no idea where the seven Noahide laws emerge, but evidence for it at the time of Jesus and Paul is scant. I would suggest to you that at the time of Jesus and Paul, and frankly 500 or 1,000 years later, there were plenty of Jews who thought the way Gentiles fix themselves is becoming Jewish. There are plenty of Jews who thought the way Gentiles fix themselves is by following the seven Noahide commandments. And there were plenty of Jews who thought the way Gentiles fix themselves, there ain't no way. They stink. So I'm always wary now or in antiquity of speaking about a traditional Jewish view or a, Jew that's, a view that's widely held, and especially not in the first century, where I think there were all kinds of different Jewish views of Gentiles. Um, yeah. So going forward in time, Christianity would critique Judaism based on Paul's analysis that we just read. Correct. as being a neurotic religion. Neurotic in the sense that in order to be redeemed, you have to fulfill all the commandments, and you can never do that. Yes, it's called legalism, is what the, the bad word they use to describe it. Okay. And at least as the rabbis understood Judaism, Judaism was about living in relationship with God rather than a checklist of um, unfulfillable commandments. And that, that, according to some Christian scholars, is the seed for anti-Semitism. That Judaism was seen, again, as this neurotic, un, unfulfillable religion. What would you imagine Paul would respond to that critique of later Christianity of Judaism? What would Paul respond to the critique? Well, first of all, I... Or, or how would you respond? So I would suggest to you, first of all, that if, if Paul did found out that the world hadn't ended 10 years after he died, he would be utterly shocked. Um, yeah, um, first of all, I'd be wary of saying that there anything is the seed for Christian anti-Judaism, or eventually anti-Semitism. What I would say, I actually just finished up a class at rabbinical school on Judaism and Christianity in the first five centuries, in which we emerged the emergence, we'll watch the emergence of rabbinic Judaism and the emergence of proto-Orthodox or Orthodox Christianity, which is Paul. Keep in mind, in the second and third centuries, there were Christianities that, for all intents and purposes, embraced Judaism, the Hebrew Bible, Jewish life, and Jewish law, and there were Christians who were even to the left of Paul and said, not only did we not do the Torah, the God of Israel isn't really God. There's a higher God than the God of Israel. That was something called Gnosticism you may have heard of. We happen to talk about that if you're but I would suggest to you that for proto-Orthodox Christianity, which said, we embrace Judaism. In other words, we accept that the God who sent Jesus is the God of Israel. And we embrace the Old Testament to our New Testament. But at the same time, we have to find something that's inadequate about it, because otherwise there would have been no, no need for Jesus of Nazareth 
um, to have been risen from the dead. So I would suggest to you that the basis of Christian anti-Judaism is actually an anxiety that is inherent in Christianity and always will be, which is how are we Jews, but how is Judaism something inadequate that we had to do something different with it? I would suggest to you, by the way, that I make the same argument to my reform rabbinical students about reform Judaism. That there's very little orthodox anxiety about reform in the same way that there's very little Jewish anxiety about Christianity. But there's a lot of reform anxiety about orthodox Judaism. Because on the one hand, there's this desire to say, yeah, we're like them. Look, I, I, I can have an Ashkenazi accent too, and I can observe the Torah too, and I can do these Jewish things. But at the same time, I realize that as a Reformed Jew, I'm something newer and different, and I think better. But negotiating what the relationship is to the thing that I acknowledge preceded is a source of great anxiety. And I think for Christians, as long as Jews are around, they will always be seen as the older thing, the more authentic thing, and that will always breed a certain anxiety and a desire to show why there has to be something wrong with it. Because otherwise, Christianity has no validity. So I hope, uh, yes, and that's saying something not nice about Christianity, but I'm saying something not nice about Reform Judaism, which I think is the answer to all the world's problems. So what are you going to do? <laughs> okay, I think we're going to wrap it up because we're done. Um, and I think One you have more to run. question. I think he has to run. One more question. Uh, was uh, Paul talking for or against Jesus? In Matthew uh, 10, 17, Jesus says to do the commandment to his followers and better than the teachers of the law. I would, suggest to you, I would suggest to you that never once in his life would Jesus have suggested that Jews should not follow the commandments of the Torah. Yeah. To his followers, Christians. I argue in this book that's coming up that it was really Paul who invented the notion that Jews ought to not, well, Gentiles, and then by extension Jews, not follow the Torah. In a sense, he was talking against Jesus. In, yes. That's okay. Okay, with that, I want to wish you all happy Sunday, day five.